I see she was making her homemade jambalaya, and I hear her voice in the kitchen go, Babe, where did you put that egg with chowder on the fridge? Um, she has, like, had, I'm afraid it's still had, world famous, like, hot puppies. These things were so good. And everybody that had them ate them until they were going to pop. You could not make enough of them. She could make a huge bowl of them. They would all get eaten. And I told her that that old, dirty, outdated calendar got thrown away. Like, I watched panic, like, pull out of her eyes. Like, for real. The only reason she took it was because of all 365 recipes in that goofy little thing of her high puppy recipe was in that calendar. And, and she just went to it every time. Um, she did some other changes and written them on the little calendar so she wouldn't forget that she had it. And I threw it away. Um, and so that, that nasty little calendar basically put it on. The worst part of this is that I have literally hundreds of different hot puppy recipes. Um, and those are good hot puppies. None of them are bad hot puppies. None of them are really hot puppies. And so, Thank you. 
and defining God's presence uh, and from hope in His word. That's how we when you're used to hearing when we talk about joy in the church. And then the biblical joy is choosing to respond to external circumstances with inner contentment and satisfaction. Because we know that God will use these experiences to accomplish His work in and through us in our lives. Pretty common. We're used to that definition. Finally, Christian joy is a good feeling in the soul produced by the Holy Spirit as He causes us to see the beauty of Christ in the world and in His Word. So, I don't disagree with any of these definitions. I think they're all good. But all these definitions make joy something that we choose and, and maybe cultivate uh, in us, which automatically makes this type of joy rooted in the cerebral cortex, the part of our brain that does choosing. Uh, and uh, because the limbic cortex you have no control over. It's, it's the part that just happens all by itself. When you're allowed to just watch joy happen in a brain scan, it doesn't respond to knowledge or choice. It's something that just, that the stimuli comes in and joy happens whether you choose it or not. Um, the limbic cortex responds many times faster than the cerebral cortex. Many, many times faster. Actually, the limbic cortex is answering big questions about your identity and, and how you see the world six times a second. Six times per second, your brain asks, who am, who am I in this world? Um, in the limbic cortex. It's where we get our identity from. Like our deeply rooted sense of ourselves comes from this limbic cortex. And it fires really, really, really fast. The, it moves at the speed of emotion and the cerebral cortex is logic. It has to figure things out and think, and it's way, way, way slower. And so joy happens before you have a chance to choose it. Neurobiological joy. I'm not talking about the theological joy that we talk about in church usually. Today we're talking about neurobiological joy, that trigger in the brain that happens. Um, so this makes us uncomfortable because we don't like to put much of an emphasis on stuff that happens on its own. We want the will to be supreme. We want to choose joy, not have it be something that we have access to or not. Um, so we, we've kind of fallen into this over the last three, four, five hundred years um, that, uh, that godliness or, or spirituality is all about um, knowing the right things and choosing the right things. That, that's what we've kind of focused on. Um, and this is where the Bible steps in brilliantly, I think. Um, but before we do that, let's talk about this, this uh, core emotion of joy and the way that works in the brain. The very first and most fascinating thing about joy is that it is completely and utterly relational, um, which is fascinating. Joy always has an object. Um, uh, in newborn babies, the joy center of the brain is originally built of what they call mirror neurons. These are brain cells that are uh, fully capable. They have all the mechanics to work, but they have no programming whatsoever. And they get their programming via imitation. And so when a, when a baby sees mom smile at it, those mirror neurons in the joy center light up and they become, they mirror the joy they see in the face of mom and they, they learn how to experience joy as they watch joy in mom's face. And so the joy center in a baby actually grows in response to seeing joy. It learns it through imitation, through the uh, growth of these mirror neurons. And then once these mirror neurons experience joy, they stay joy neurons. They, they actually grow into what they are through the act of imitation. Maybe a little deeper than we need to go, but, um, but uh, maybe learn joy or have feel joy from the faces that project joy at them. Um, in fact, uh, the 
kids who are who are raised to a year old and, and don't have that. They don't have people looking in their face um, and, and caregivers showing them joy. Have a severely underdeveloped joy center from then on, um, and it takes a lot of work for them to learn to experience joy, like true neurobiological joy, because uh, because that is grown into the baby. Uh, the baby's brain doubles in size in the first year, mostly those mirror neurons learning to imitate uh, as they as they grow. Really fascinating. Um, but we learn from this that joy uh, causes joy in another. That that joy is a, is a mirrored response. When you ever had someone walk up to you smiling and tried like not to smile, like you know, the, uh, we we were on vacation um, in Arkansas a couple years ago. And I was kind of, we were driving, just kind of exploring, and I turned down a road that turned out to not be a road. I'm in somebody's, I think, private driveway, but we drove down it for a really long time. And uh, and we pulled up some guys doing some work, and this guy started walking on our van, like, looking angry, like, what are you doing on my property? And he got, and the kid's like, yeah, turn around, turn around, turn around, what are you And so I got out of the van, and I put the biggest smile I had on my face, and I was like, hey! My name's Chris, and I'm Ross, and I smiled. I watched him, like, like, like his face straight and the smile came over it, and he was like, yeah, this is our day. He got real nice all of a sudden, and then just from me smiling at him, like, I literally projected joy at him, and it lit up his little joy center, and he all of a sudden was feeling something he didn't want to feel, and shook my hand, told me how to make my way out. No, you just want to turn around. Up. You can turn around up here and just head right back out and turn left. Like, gave me directions to get out. Real nice guy. Once I, you know, got him to imitate my joy a little bit. Uh, but because of the way joy works, one of the most popular definitions of joy in the psychi- psychiatric community is the feeling, when they try to explain what joy feels like, they say it's the feeling of being the twinkle in someone else's eye. It's a beautiful definition. Joy is the feeling of being the twinkle in someone else's eye. So when someone else looks at you like they love you, that weird warm flush you get, like it feels so good to be in my place with my people, is the feeling of joy. So babies feel the warmth and happiness of being loved uh, as they kind of perceive that in the face of their parents beaming at them. And that feeling imprints itself on the brain. Uh, and this happens before you have any language to explain it or uh, or describe that feeling or any rational thought that can make sense of it. It's just something that you pick up from your parents uh, via imitation. And this entire feeling is wrapped up in the image of a smiling face. Like when you when you when you picture the the kind of image that brings about joy, it's usually a smile. It's usually somebody looking at you. Warmly. From then on, from the time it's wired into you as a baby, a smile will have an impact on your physiology like nothing else will. But here's the catch. Because that joy center is formed um, in the context of relationship, um, while looking into the face of a loving mom or a loving dad, um, that feeling will, from then on, stay relational. It, it always stays attached to a relationship which is why joy can be dangerous. Um, oftentimes when someone hears about the core emotions, fear, anger, surprise, disgust, sadness, and joy, they ask, why is there only one positive emotion, right? Doesn't it feel like all the emotions, emotions are negative? 
Um, and this is a common miscon- uh, mis- uh, uh, misconception about emotions because there are no positive or negative emotions. Nothing ever really happens for good unless you get angry. Anger drives good things. You know, uh, usually when something bad happens and that part of you that is like, that is enough. I'm not going to let this happen anymore. That's, a, that's anger. It's a positive thing. That's how change happens. We get angry. Um, no one ever gets kind of personally better. We never improve ourselves until we feel guilt and shame. Um, when that triggers in our brain, we say, I don't want to do this anymore. I want to be better, and we change ourselves. It's a positive emotion in that moment. Uh, so, uh, and disgust. When we get disgusted with ourselves, we change and get better. It's positive. Fear can totally paralyze us, or it can motivate us to save money and prepare for the future because we're, we want to be ready. We're afraid of what might happen if we're not. And so fear can be used. Um, joy can connect you to mom and dad as a baby. It can also connect you to cocaine because cocaine absolutely ignites the joy center in the brain. And it's why we're like, this stuff is magic, you know, because you feel joy. Um, it is not a positive emotion in that moment. Um, uh, the, uh, all, almost all addictions are rooted in the joy center of the brain. Um, and it's usually because uh, when something lights up the joy center, you feel connected to that thing. It's, 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 that's what it's supposed to do. Joy is supposed to be relational. And so when we do something and it makes us feel joy, we suddenly feel which is totally why the most natural response when you eat the right cheeseburgers is, God, I love that cheeseburger. I love their cheeseburgers. We use relationship language to talk about a thing because that thing brought us joy, right? Um, we use, you know, love language to talk about inanimate things because the joy center of our brain is supposed to create relationship. Our brains function in such a way that joy is supposed to be relational um, and and make us feel attached to the thing bringing us joy, which incidentally is also why um, sex is supposed to stay inside of marriage. Um, the joy center of the brain absolutely explodes during sex, which is designed to make us fall in love and feel love. Those the, the the emotional or the hormonal rush of the brain um, that that we call love that makes us feel in love happens during the act of, of making love. Um, it's designed to make us feel good because we're hardwired to be attached to the thing that makes us feel good. Um, and so there's a very kind of biological sense to it all that that this this, this thing is supposed to make me feel attached right now, which is one of the hugest dangers of hookup culture um, is it tries to separate something that cannot, that we're wired against. Um, and so, uh, super dangerous. Anyway, so if that's true, neurological joy um, is always relational. It connects us to things and to people. Then this idea should be in Scripture, as Scripture puts such a heavy emphasis on joy. And this is where this gets kind of really fun. So let's, for the sake of argument... Um, assume that the, the, the psychological, this, this bi- neurobiological definition of joy has the feeling of being the twinkle in someone else's eye. Let's adopt that definition um, for today that psychiatrists use, that, that warm feeling of being the twinkle in someone else's eye. Um, so here that look in the Bible. Let's start in Psalm 89, verse 15. Happy are those who hear the joyful call of worship, for they will walk in the light of your presence, Lord. 
for some reason, modern translators um, like that word presence as kind of a generic um, uh, word, but the actual Hebrew word for presence there is, uh, is panim, which is the Hebrew word for face. Um, and so the way this actually reads in the Hebrew is, happy are those who hear the joyful call of worship. They will walk in the light of your face. Like God the, living in the twinkle of someone else's eye. That feeling of being the twinkle in someone else's eye. So when a, when a Hebrew would read this, they would say, happy, joyful are those who hear the joyful call of worship. They'll walk in the light of your face. They will be the twinkle in your eye. So we see this connection in the scripture between joy and the face um, all automatically. Picture that newborn baby learning to feel joy in the face of its mother. Um, uh, how about Psalm 16? You will show me the way of life, granting me the joy of your presence and the pleasure of living with you forever. And there's that Hebrew word again, panim. You will show me the way of life, granting me the joy of your face and the pleasures of living with you forever. Now, bear in mind, neurobiologists have only figured out in the last 20 to 30 years this connection between joy and the human face, that we feel the most joy when we look into another human's face and see them smiling at us. And, uh, and the scripture seems to have had it for, you know, about 3,000 years. Um, one more, believe me, there's hundreds of these. I had to pick some of my favorite ones. Um, you have endowed him with eternal blessing and, giving, and given him the joy of your presence. You know how generic and kind of like unemotional, like we don't feel connected to that. But given the joy of your presence, that's a good thing. But in Hebrew, you know, you've endowed him with eternal blessing and given him the joy of your face. That that beautiful smile that we're wired for as babies. Um, God is saying, I will give you the joy of my face, looking into my face and, and feeling that smile. So in John 15, when Jesus gives the speech to his disciples that starts with, I am the vine, you are the branches, and everything, every verse is about this desperate need for connection. Stay connected to the, the vine, this, this, uh, this deeply rooted in being connected to Jesus. The Lord concludes the idea of connectedness with this. I've told you these things so that you will be filled with my joy, with the light of my face. Yes, your joy will overflow. In the Bible, joy has always been deeply relational. It's always been attached to connection and relationship. A few thousand years later, with high-dollar equipment and low-level radioactive material flowing through the brain, um, scientists are discovering the exact same thing, that joy, the joy center of the brain, is always relational. So, you know, we're only about 3,000 years behind the Bible, um, that outdated um, and antiquated book. Um, so I don't know if I've kind of driven this connection between joy and the face enough yet, but um, I do want to say one more thing, um, and it's this experiment um, that we call the still face experiment. Um, I say we scientists have been doing this since like the 70s and um, and uh, replicated it thousands and thousands of times. And I will say online that we had some trouble with this on the live stream earlier, so we're... Uh, Actually, if you get on YouTube and search Still Face Experiment, you can watch it. I don't think we're going to be able to live stream it because it messed up our live stream. We're hoping this doesn't mess up our live stream, but look it up and watch it um, when you get a chance because it's powerful. Um, so this is maybe the most powerful illustration for me is the way that our, we're, our faces and joy are wired into us in a relational way. Babies this young 
are extremely responsive to the emotions and the reactivity and the social interaction that they get from the world around them. This is something that we started studying oh, 34 years ago when people didn't think that infants could engage in social interaction. And the self-paced experiment what the mother did was she sits down and she's playing with her baby who's about a year of age. And she gives a greeting to the baby. The baby gives a greeting back to her. This baby starts pointing at different places in the world and the mother's trying to engage her and play with her. They're working to coordinate their emotions and their intentions, what they want to do in the world. And that's really what the baby is used to. And then we get the mother to not respond to the baby. The baby very quickly picks up on this. And then she uses all of her abilities to try and get the mother back. She smiles at the mother. She points because she's used to the mother looking where she points. The baby puts both hands up in front of her and says, what's happening here? She makes that screechy sound at the mother, like, come on, why aren't we doing this? Even in this two minutes when they don't get the normal reaction, they react with negative emotions. They turn away. They feel the stress of it. They actually may lose control of their posture because of the stress that they're experiencing. It's important to note that nothing bad happens to the baby. The baby's not being punished. The baby's not hungry. The baby's not being hurt in any way. Like, they're not doing anything mean to the baby. Um, she wasn't, you know, nothing negative has really happened except she suddenly doesn't feel the joy coming from the face of, of the mother. Um, the only thing that's happened that caused her to lose all of her joy um, and experience emotional pain is that she lost the light of her mother's face. Um, she can no longer feel um, uh, that, that joy coming from the mom because joy is that relational. So we read those passages and the Psalms are like, you know, I will give you the joy of my face. It's this. Most of our laments, you know, when we read the laments, it's, God, where are you? Why have you abandoned me? It's that baby sitting in that chair. Like, of course... We know in the front of our brain, God never abandons us. Like, all of us know that information. But we're literally like that baby in that chair thrashing, like, I cannot feel your face, and it's freaking me out. And that's where most of the lament psalms are born from. Like, God, I just want to feel the joy of your face. Joy is always relational. So I know um, we're kind of deep in the message uh, this morning for me to just now be uh, getting to the actual reading of today's passage. Promise me there's not like a whole message after it either. Um, I, but I do think it's important to know that joy is utterly relational um, before we read today's poetry. Our, our reading today is called The First Song of Isaiah. Um, and it, uh, it's written in, in Hebrew poetic form. It's a chiastic poem. Um, but I'll be reading um, Isaiah 12, if you want to read along. In that day, 
you will sing. I will praise you, Lord. You were angry with me, but not anymore. Now you comfort me. See, God, you have come to save me. I will trust in him and not be afraid. The Lord God is my strength, uh, is the strength of my song. He's given me the victory with joy. You will drink deeply from the fountain of salvation. And that wonderful day, you will sing. Thank you, Lord. Praise his name. Tell the nations what he's done. Let them know how mighty he is. Sing to the Lord, for he has done wonderful things. Make known his praise around the world. Let the people of Jerusalem shout his praise with joy. For great is the Holy One of Israel who lives among you. This is the word of the Lord. I'm not going to spend much time unpacking all of this poem, um, but I do want you to recognize the kind of absolute joyful and excited tone of it. It is this song of praise and excitement, uh, and even more so the way it's linked to this very important concept. This type of poem is called chiastic, um, which I'm not going to go through the way Jewish poetry works. I've done it in sermons past. If you want to look them up. Um, uh, but it basically means the, the two, the beginning and ending concepts match, and then the second and second and last match, and then all the way, usually with a with a, a, a kind of central theme or thesis in the very middle. But the very first thought and the very last thought in this poem are supposed to match. And it starts like this. You will say to the Lord, I thank you, God. You were angry, but your anger was You and moved in and comforted me. Moved in and comforted me. And it concludes like this. Raise the roof, sing your hearts out. Uh, I'm going to ask you, these are from the message translation. Raise the roof, sing your hearts out, O Zion. The greatest lives among you. So in the kind of chiastic um, structure, the first and last thought are about proximity. Where God is. It's about this location thought. All the context of this passage, all the joy and exaltation is wrapped in these bookends of God's presence, God's proximity, where God is. You withdrew your anger, but then you moved in. You moved in me, and now he lives among us. Joy explodes when God is close. When the presence of God, the face of God, the, the pawnee of God can be felt and known when the face is shining upon us, we sing out, for joy is basically what's happening here. Now, this is where the science of joy and the old kind of sermon definition of joy, they kind of choosing to be content because of who Jesus is, this is where those kind of collide. Because joy is so relational, scientists call joy a supra-emotion, um, an emotion that can be felt above and, uh, and over other emotions. Um, it's, uh, so here's how that works. When you're angry... Uh, if you feel connected to someone else while you are angry, um, you feel that they are with you and that you're still loved and supported, the joy center of the brain still lights up even though you're angry. You still feel connected and this weird sense of joy, uh, which is why we love big protests and mobs, because in our anger, we feel like we have a people. And it, and it makes us feel good even though we're there to feel bad. Like we're there to feel angry and, and scream. And that's why you don't see a lot of, you know, one-person protests as much because we, we, we connect to people. Um, when you, uh, even if you're sad, deeply sad, when you feel that someone is there with you in your sadness and that you're not alone, 
the joy region of the brain is lit up even in your sadness. You're able to feel like a strange sense of joy even as you're deep in your sadness. So in a weird way, you are sad and joyful at the same time. Um, this is why we gather when someone dies. When Josiah died, I spent about a week at the Mason's house, and every night people came over and did nothing. Like, we did, like nothing really happened. It, there wasn't any real reason to gather, and yet we gathered, even in grief, because the soul was crying out for that relational connection. You, you needed to know you weren't alone. Um, because that's and what draws you is that feeling of joy, that strange feeling of connectedness in the face of another that feels what you're feeling. Um, and so some of the old definitions of joy, whereby joy is, is different from happiness, because happiness is based on happenstance or what's happening, and joy is trusting God no matter what the circumstances, those definitions still hold with one prerequisite, and that is that you feel deeply connected and loved. And when we feel deeply connected and loved, we can suddenly be joyful even when things are not happy. Even when things are bad, we can still access joy if we stay deeply connected and loved. Not that joy is, is, uh, uh, is a choice and happiness is just a silly emotion. What makes joy joy is, uh, is it both only experienced in relationship, in connection, um, and it's the glue that makes relationship and connection happen. That's what makes joy, joy. Um, we've been talking about the way poetry and images kind of speak to our soul in a way that mere words can't do. Um, and I love today's song for that reason. Isaiah um, relates his joy to God's location. Um, God comes in, physically moves closer to forgive and lives among us, in us, around us, you know, with his people. Uh, but here's a little secret for all of you literalists out there um, who don't like poetry. God's proximity did not change. Like, when you are an omnipresent God, you cannot move physically closer. That's not how omnipresence works. God hasn't gotten any closer to Isaiah, and he doesn't live any more among the people of Israel than, uh, than anyone else on the globe. And yet when Isaiah writes about the feeling of joy, when he writes about what it feels like to be joyful in his relationship with God, he has to frame it in language that makes his soul feel it, which is, God drew closer to me somehow. No, that's not literally true. The cerebral cortex could sit there and go, excuse me, that's not how omnipresence works. Like the rational part of our brain can sit there and argue but your soul is like, all I know is that God got closer to me and I could feel him. Like I could feel his face shining on me, which is what makes this poetry so beautiful, is that Isaiah's not being literal. He's not saying God actually got closer. He's telling you, he's giving you a picture that your soul can relate to, God drawing close to you. Uh, his brain might know that God is omnipresent, but Isaiah's soul knows that somehow, through this act of forgiveness that God granted, God has gotten much, much closer. Um, so Isaiah writes how his soul feels. Um, Paul did something similar in Second Corinthians um, when he said this, For God, who said, Let there be light in the darkness, has made this light to shine in our hearts, so we know the glory of God that is seen in the face of Jesus Christ. 
He was writing to people who had not seen, nor would see on this side of heaven, the face of Jesus Christ. These are people who, you know, lived after Jesus, got saved after Jesus had ascended. These people wouldn't see, um, but there was a visceral difference between saying the presence of Jesus and and saying, which is an, an accurate and quite popular phrase, but kind of abstract and doesn't necessarily have an emotional connection to it. Our emotions don't access the idea of presence, but the face of Jesus. Like when Paul says that we, we see the glory of God in the face of Jesus, um, which for me at least comes with a very physiological response. When I imagine, when I close my eyes and picture Jesus' face, it does something in my belly I can't quite explain. There's a physiological you know, acknowledgement uh, that just thinking about the presence of Jesus doesn't do the face of Jesus, which is why I love like the chosen and, and, and things like that. Something about well, they pick the right Jesus actor, and, and he has the right face. Like it does something in our souls that just reading the words doesn't do. When I picture the face of Jesus and his eyes looking at me, you know, my chest tightens up and I feel something in my guts that my brain can't always explain. Um, so instead of the generic term presence, uh, Paul keys in on the face. Uh, that, that so desperately communicates joy. So, how do we respond to this? Um, we're actually going to be spending some time in January um, talking about integrating the limbic cortex into our relationship with God and what that means to our discipleship process. Uh, kind of excited about it here at Open Table. Um, so, I'm going to try not to step too much on the toes of, of the next series. But I want to say this, um, we rarely do things continually um, unless they're attached to joy. Uh, All of us have tried to build disciplines into our life, and if it doesn't trigger your joy center, it simply will not last. Um, We we can sometimes white-knuckle, you know, discipline every once in a while into ourselves and just make ourselves do it. Um, especially if there's another strong emotion like fear driving it. Sometimes we can make ourselves do certain things. But m- most of what we do, especially in our spiritual lives, if there's no joy attached to it, it will not last. If, it, if, if, it, if we don't find a way um, to attach it to the joy center of our brain, we won't stick with it. Um, uh, so if you've um, ever tried to like build a habit of reading the Scripture or something, I'm going to read this Bible this year. I'm going to read this much this year, um, and you uh, and you just kind of peter out when you hit you know, Leviticus, which is usually where it happens, um, uh, and it's super frustrating because you also really, really want to, like, and you're like, I, it's not that I don't want to, I genuinely feel like I want to, I have no idea why I don't, um, uh, or you plug any other spiritual discipline into that, and you have trouble sticking with it. It's usually because it's not triggering joy. You're not feeling joy around it. You have to build your joy and you will suddenly find yourself desiring to do those things you want to struggle to do. But here's the catch. Joy only grows in relationship. Joy, joy only grows in connection. Um, we, we, we get it from others and give it to others. Um, we, we say this all the time here that we were made for relationships. It is not good for man to be alone when a perfect God had a perfect man in a perfect environment. There was no sin on the planet. There was no sin in the man. There was nothing wrong. 
And we say this all the time, as long as it's me and God, I have everything. No, if you have you and God, God looks at you and goes, this is not good. It is not good for man to be alone. God does not want to be alone with you. I don't know why. But the one time he had that moment, a sinless human and, and everything perfect in a sinless environment, God said, this is not the way it was supposed to be. You are wired for connection and relationship and to be with other people. You are, it is not good for man to be alone, God said in Genesis. Uh, and so, we are social creatures. And I know this is a bold statement to make. You know, so please take it with a, a little bit of a grain of salt. But the thing that connects us to God and His Word and His kingdom are not theological doctrines. They're, they're just not. And, uh, they, they may be 100% true. They're, you know, the, the right theological doctrines are absolutely real and true. But that's not what keeps us plugged in. Theology is not what keeps us plugged in. It's fascinating. We love it. It, it helps us feel grounded and centered. But it's not what... Keeps us plugged in. What keeps us plugged in is the smile on another person's face. It's the love we feel from people. What keeps us plugged in is, is when you walk in and, and, and you know these people love me. This is my place. These are my people. It's really connected uh, and, and like you are loved and you have a place. It's feeling like this is where I belong. This is what makes the Torah so powerful in the Old Testament. We read it like it's a long list of rules that nobody could keep. Like, man, look at that list of things you're supposed to do. Um, Jews back then, didn't, they looked at it as the definition of their people. That we're the people who do these things. This is who we are. This is what shapes us as a people. I was talking to a Jew once, and we were talking about how they don't eat meat and dairy together. And I was like, so you can't have a cheeseburger? I'm fixated on cheeseburgers today. I don't know. Most of them in my message is just keep going back to cheeseburgers. Now I'm drooling. Um, I was like, so you can't have a cheeseburger. You can't put cheese on your burger. like, no, we can't. I was like, I'm feeling honored. I'm like, so why? Like, tell me why. Like, because I, I know the command, why they don't, and I think it means something totally different, so I just want to see what he says. Like, so why can't you eat meat dairy? He's like, because we're Jews. I was like, well, that's not an answer. Like, why do Jews? And he was like, you could call a Jew those who don't eat cheeseburgers if you wanted. Like, we don't ask why. We're just the people who don't. It, it shapes us as a people. We, we don't think of it as a rule to break. We think of it as we're the people who don't do that. That's, and so they, they draw this weird sense of identity where we look at it as, as a thou shalt not. They're like, no, that's just who we are. That's how we define ourselves. We're the people who don't do that. Like, it doesn't matter why. It doesn't matter if, if it's breaking a rule. We just don't. And so the Torah helped to to give people a place to feel like these are my people. We are the people of Torah. Um, they were the, the Torah people, and that community gave them identity and joy and connectedness um, that, that could be found in those relationships. Um, uh, so for you to live the Christian life, to live the, the faithful Christian life, and actually live the way you want to live, um, you need to feel joy. You will not do it if you don't feel joy in it. Uh, and in order to feel joy in it, in the Christian life, you need to be deeply connected and in relationship. They go together. Neurobiologists discover that joy is always relational. It's connected. Uh, and that also almost nothing changes if you don't feel joy in it. The second you feel joy in doing something, you will keep doing it. It's how addiction happens. And some things are good to get addicted to. Um, so, 
so trust me, it's science. Um, that's, you know, and as we all know, you can trust the science. Um, ooh, we went there. Thirty years ago, um, <laughs> 30 years ago when Esther and I were dating, um, we were part of this kind of deeply connected um, and loving Christian community. Um, I often try to explain what it was like to live and love and do life together um, the way we did um, back then. And uh, I've found very few people that seem to have the context to even talk about that. Um, I was inexplicably um, growing by leaps and bounds in my spiritual life at that time. I wasn't even really trying to. There was very little discipline. And yet, um, I I didn't know how to try to, honestly. I didn't even know that was a thing you were supposed to do. But God was moving in my life. We were, uh, I was just changing and watching the Holy Spirit shape my character and change who I was. Um, and I had no idea that we were doing um, and maximizing our relational connections. We were so connected and so um, together. Uh, and we didn't have neurobiological definitions for what's happening. Hey, we're maximizing our joy center. This is awesome. No, we didn't know what we were doing. We were, it was just happening. Um, which made discipleship fun and as natural as breathing because it was happening in the context of relationship. But when you read the first chapter of Acts, they talk about all the things they were doing. And I mean, the first few chapters of Acts, and they were eating together, and they were going to the temple together, and they were you know, giving to each other, and they were breaking bread together and praying together. Like, you see why there was that explosive growth in the church because they were so connected and so deeply in love with each other. Uh, but for us, as life changed uh, and got harder to live that closely connected, and everybody got busy and, and stages of life changed, my growth slowed down with it. Um, things started to kind of stagnate. I got frustrated. I was constantly frustrated looking for that, um, that, that kickstart, you know, to, man, it, why am I not growing the way I was? Why are things not happening? Why has everything slowed down? And here's the deal. I hunted for that kind of community for years. And really, I think I still am. Um, And I tried to imitate everything we had in that group. We tried to sing the same songs, and we tried to study the same passages. Like, how do I find that formula? You know, we we started new groups and did everything the way we did the first time, thinking it would happen again. And it was like my wife's hush puppies. It was like, once you know there's the best, really hard to settle for anything else. Um, Since I threw away that calendar, we've been on the hunt for the perfect hush puppy and just can't find it. Um, I still don't know how to recreate that group but um, from 30 years ago, but the reason we focus so hard here on being a people, on being a community together, rather than just giving you a kind of a cerebral list of things to believe and doctrines that I think you have to have to be a Christian and and hammering you with all that stuff is, is I'm starting to learn, and like I said, I've been digging into this for a few years now, is, is the power of joy hangs in feeling connected. And everything in the Christian life that is important to us only happens if we feel joy, and we only feel joy in relationship. And so I believe as we build up people, uh, it, it creates a soil that the rest of the stuff can grow well in. So here's how I'd love for you to respond to this message. It's not complicated. Smile. Smile at someone. Um, especially smile at the kids when you're here. Um, don't, don't make it creepy. <laughs> you know, 
<laughs> weird, but, but let them read the joy on your face. They need that. They need to, to feel like this is the place where they, they don't even know why, but when they come in, it feels good because people are smiling at me and I see the face of God in the face of these people in this place. When they see joy in your face, they will feel joy. It's the way the science works. It's the biology of it. It's the craziest thing, but joy is literally contagious. Um, and it's our job to fill each other with that joy. Um, even when you're hurting, even, even when you're frustrated and angry, even when you're confused and sad, when you look another person in the face and you let them know that you are happy to be with them, you are glad that they are there, their brain chemistry changes in that moment. And that is majorly important. The Bible has been saying it for 3,000 years that you will feel joy when you sense the face of God. And we can do that for each other. Um, this is actually why we love our pets, believe it or not. This is why certain animals were made pets a long, long time ago. Uh, when you walk in the door and that little creature is happy to see you, something changes in your brain chemistry. You're like, he's happy I'm home. Like, something in you gets excited because this worthless thing that you have to clean up after and feed and it really does not carry its weight. But when it's excited to see you, something happens in your brain and you feel connected to it. And suddenly it's in your family pictures, which is creepy. I'm not a pet person. i got too many kids to get attached to pets. But... Um, but it's what happens when, when a creature looks excited to see you, you feel connected to it. And we can do that. We can be each other's little puppies. That got weird. Take that back. Roll that back. But um, when someone's excited to see you, it makes you feel joy. And when you feel joy, everything else in the brain works better. Um, I don't think, I think God knew that he wired us this way when he warned us not to neglect gathering together with ourselves. He said, hey, don't, don't, don't stay away. Don't neglect the gathering like some are doing. I think it's because he knew our brain chemistry needed it. Our brain chemistry depended on it. He knew we would need each other in order to experience joy. So I'm not telling you to go out and just be joyful or make a choice to feel more joy. I'm telling you to to give it to someone else, spread it, smile at someone, be kind to someone, um, give joy to someone else, let your face shine on people. Um, and I think that they will feel the face of God and, and, and give it back to you. And I think joy grows that way. And that's how we choose joy. <laughs>